Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world. I'm so excited about my guest today, Anthony Pink. And if you don't know who Anthony is, he takes a strictly scientific approach to his extensive studies of near-death experiences and the labyrinth of time. Anthony suggests that the past, present and future all exist simultaneously. Anthony is an author, researcher and speaker attempting to create a radically new approach to the mysteries of consciousness, perceptual reality and non-ordinary experiences. He has lectured across the UK and has spoken at at events in Europe, Australia, and North America. Anthony's first book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, has now sold over 60,000 copies worldwide and has been translated into every major European language. Anthony has written eight books, co-authored and co-edited a tenth. All of them develop his cheating the ferryman hypotheses into ever wider areas of application. His approach has always been to apply science to the mysterious. Anthony Peake attended Warwick University at the London School of Economics. He is a member of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, the Scientific and Medical Network and the Society for Psychic Research. This is his story and this is his passion. Anthony, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so honoured to have you on the show. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this. It's going to be a fascinating interview. Welcome. Hopefully. Welcome. It will be. It will be. I'm excited. <laughs> so I've written this down. What is the gateway to higher consciousness? What does that mean? And what what is the gateway? Well, I've argued long and hard. I've been quite fascinated for many years. Just a little bit of a background. Sure. I, I experienced what's called classic migraine. And I have done ever since childhood. And in classic migraine, unlike ordinary migraine, um, you have um, what's called the, the aura sensation before you experience a headache now. And in fact, I've not had a full migraine headache for about 30 years, but I still get the aura experiences. And the aura experiences are a form of altered state of consciousness, whereby your, your perceptions of the reality around you warp and change. Now, this has intrigued me. It has fascinated me because over the years I've had a series of um, curious experiences whereby I've, during aura state, I've had profound um, deja vu experiences. Also, during the aura state, I've had profound hypnagogic experiences. Now, by hypnagogic experiences, I mean um, waking dreams. They're as if you're in a scenario whereby reality changes around you and you find yourself somewhere else. Um, I'll give an example of this. Many years ago, I was at work, uh, working on a computer, and suddenly I found myself in a completely different place. And I was looking down at an old man reading a newspaper um, from a tree, from a vantage point of a tree. And I was looking down, and then I looked out, and I could see a square in front of me. And I knew it was somewhere in Latin America. And in the distant side of the square, there was the sound of a siren and an ambulance going round. Now. Hypnagogica is quite strange in that 
you're, you're perceiving it, but it's almost like it's in your periphery vision. And if you focus in on it, you'll lose it. Most people probably will identify hypnagogia as being that kind of liminal state just before you go to sleep when you see faces in profile and you hear voices and everything else as well. Um, that was such a vivid experience. And a few days later, I had a similar one where um, I was what seemed to be like an animal, like a cat or something, looking through a glass table at an elderly woman drinking a cup of coffee. And then again, I lost it again. So these things intrigued me for a long time. And in my book, Opening the Doors of Perception, um, I do an extensive analysis of altered states of consciousness from uh, hallucinations right through. And I argue that using the term, the doors of perception, which was first put forward in 1954 by Aldous Huxley in his book of the same title, um, I suggest as Huxley did and as C.D. Broad did previous to that and Henri Bergson, the famous philosopher, uh, the French philosopher in the late 19th century, suggested that the brain acts as an attenuator. The brain is there, it's a reducing valve. It's there to take out information, not to put information in. So effectively, when our doors of perception are open, as, uh, as um, William Blake, the British mm -hmm. poet said, when the doors of perception are open, we see the world as it really is, infinite. And I believe there are certain neurological conditions that effectively stop or, or um, affect the way in which the brain attenuator takes out the greater reality. And I argue these are classic migraine, temporal lobe epilepsy, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, um, uh, autism, and various other neurological conditions that seem to top, stop the brain from doing this. And it opens up that consciousness to the greater consciousness, to the reality that sits behind this reality, something I call the pleroma. And of course, from near-death experiences to out-of-the-body experiences to lucid dreaming, these are all related phenomena. Uh, but unlike a good deal of the writers out there, I make it my duty to go out there and do the neurology, do the neurochemistry, do the structures of the brain that are facilitating these experiences. For instance, if we argue that the brain acts as an attenuator, um, what's it attenuating? What is it stopping? And in one or two of my books, I've argued that that is endogenous dimethyltryptamine. That is the hallucinogenic substance that um, I give evidence, as do a lot of researchers these days, that it's brain generated. The pineal gland excretes uh, dimethyltryptamine and brings about altered states of consciousness. So, uh, my God, the, I could unpack that in so many layers, but we've only got probably an hour for this interview. Why is that the case? Why aren't we experiencing the full reality that we, we have the capability to through altered states of consciousness? I would argue the reason we don't is because we're, we're existing in a simulation. And the reality we see around us is an internal projection of of what is going on inside our minds. Not only that, I argue that the, again, you can do the, the physics of this. Um, indeed, I was quite fascinated to note that literally yesterday, um, uh, the, the British uh, very popular particle physicist um, uh, uh, called Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox announced on a radio program that it's highly likely that we're existing in a hologram. This has caused quite a sensation in the UK, by the way, because people are bouncing up and down because this guy is an arch materialist reductionist. And suddenly he's made this statement 
about the hologram. Now, again, this is typical of science at the moment. Science knows this. Science has been following this idea that reality is not what it seems for a long, long time. Yes, it's nothing new. It isn't, you know. Um, and the thing is that if we are existing in a simulation, if we are sims within a simulation, if we become aware of the fact we're in a simulation, it, quant it, it causes issues and problems. Um, so this is why we need to be in a state of what's called an, uh, amnesis, which was a state that uh, Plato first came up with, the, the, the Greek philosopher, when he argued that we're all in a state of forgetting who we really are. And we have to forget who we really are in order to function within this environment, within this brain-generated creation, something I call the phaneron, um, which is the, the, the brain-created reality that's around us. But we're co-creating this. You are, I am, we are all... It's not out there, but we are all creating it together. We, we, it's, that's why it's called consensual reality. We consensualize this reality around us. And in many ways, we are manipulating the reality around us in one way or another. And again, this is going back to hard science because there's something called the collapse of the wave function within quantum physics. There is something to do with the, the concept, or it's not the concept, it's a, it's a known fact, that subatomic particles until they are observed or until they are measured are literally a statistical wave. They're a wave of information. So consciousness looks at something and a wave of information suddenly becomes a, 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 a visual field and a sensory field around us, if that makes sense. Yes, I'm thinking so many things, but my God, your brain has so much information in it. Um, so we, we, we control and manipulate our reality. Based, is this based on our thoughts? What controls my reality? You do, and all of us do. Um, there, there are two kind of feedback mechanisms going on here. And um, one of the concepts I'm working on at the moment, I'm calling the egregorial. And um, what I mean by this in my latest book, um, The uh, Hidden Universe, I present the science for this. And the idea is that when we encounter things like entities, when you encounter a ghost, when you mm -hmm. encounter a poltergeist, when you encounter voices in your head, these are all being created, they are being created by you, but they are not part of you, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. which it probably doesn't. It but does. it's the idea that we bring these things into an existence. There is in, in Tibetan Buddhism, there is a concept called the tulpa. And a tulpa is a thought form that is created by people concentrating on something. And again, there is strong evidence of this. There was a, a famous experiment that took place in the early 1970s in Toronto called the Philip Experiment. And in the Philip Experiment, a group of par paranormal researchers created a ghost. They created an entity, which again became independent of them. And it's intriguing as to how there seems to be this feedback mechanism between what we want the world to be and what the world is. In my new book that I'm writing at the moment, I'm very fascinated about subatomic particles and how it is that science seems to anticipate the existence of a subatomic particle and bang, it's there. I mean, there was a fascinating case many years ago when they discovered the muon, which is, by the way, the subatomic particle that all this excitement is about at the moment, about a new form of um, a new form of energy they're discovering, a new form of a new force within the universe. And the muon was hypothetical. Um, uh, but scientists 
had never found it, but they 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 visualized it should be there. And it turned up one day in the laboratory. And the, the guy that was the head of the laboratory was a guy called uh, Eisenbard Isaac Rabbi, who was a Nobel Prize winner, by the way, in physics. And Rabbi's reaction to this was when they found it was who ordered that? In other words, like you'd ordered a pizza. Right. It's as if you anticipate things and they come into existence. And throughout science, this has always been the case, you know, right from the discovery of quanta way back in 1900 by Max Planck in Germany. Planck literally stated that his whole theory of quantum and quanta was an act of desperation. He couldn't make the maths work. He couldn't describe something called black body radiation. And he just came up with this out of his out of his head idea that was crazy. And it wasn't crazy. Suddenly, as soon as a human being thinks about something, suddenly it's out there in reality. It's like a, a feedback mechanism mm -hmm. in some way. You know? So almost um, like thoughts create things. Well, it is. The basic, the basic point, the basis of reality is thought. The basis of reality is consciousness. Consciousness is prime. Matter is created by consciousness, not consciousness created by matter. And this is one of the major issues of neurology. Indeed, in 1999, a young Australian philosopher by the name of David Chalmers stood up at an event at the University of Arizona. Um, and he turned around, and he said, there are two great problems at the moment of science. And he said, there's what I call the soft problem of science, which is how the brain functions and works. But the hard problem, which we're not even at first base of understanding, is how it is that chemicals reacting with fields within my brain and within Louise's brain creates us, creates our hopes, our dreams, our anticipations. But not only this, how it creates things in the external world. Mm -hmm. One of the great mysteries of, of neurology is something called qualia. And I've been writing a section about this. So this is no, I've never used this analogy before. It okay. literally, I mystified a lot of people on Facebook and Instagram when I asked a question yesterday about certain chemicals. And I wanted to know whether these chemicals had taste or not. Sugar. Okay. Sugar is something that you put in tea and, and everything else. And I'm a sugar addict. And that's why I was using the analogy. But if you break down sugar into its chemical constituents, you find out that it's made of, of three different um, elements, oxygen, hydrogen, and uh, carbon, okay? Car oxygen on its own is colorless and tasteless. It has no taste. So that's one part of the chemical right. structure. Carbon is the same. It has no taste and it has no color. The same goes for hydrogen. And yet you put these three together in a molecule, and lots of those molecules together create sucrose, which is table sugar. Mm -hmm. And we taste the sweetness. But the sweetness is nowhere. The sweetness is not in the chemicals. There is no sweetness in the chemicals. Our brain creates the taste of sweetness, just like it creates the color red. The color red is not out there. There's no such thing as red. There's no such thing as green or blue. These are colors that our brain interprets certain vibrations of the electromagnetic field. And that's what color we see, but they're not out there. There is no color out there. It's an illusion. It's a brain created illusion. And qualia again is one of the great mysteries of how the mind works. So your brain is already creating you and presenting to you this visual, you know, the visual field you're looking at now, 
you know, you're looking out of your eyes now. I think I'm looking at you. Exactly. You're you're (laughs) trying to look at me, looking at a screen or whatever. The visual field that you're seeing at the moment is created from signals on the back of the eye, the retina. The image on the retina is postage stamp sized and inverted. That is then converted into an electrical electrochemical signal, which goes to the darkest part of the brain, the back here, the visual cortex. Mm-hmm. There, something magical happens, whereby the brain magically turns that inverted image that's postage stamp sized into this three-dimensional surrounding you image that's full color and lively and vibrant. That's magic. That's as near as magic as you can imagine. And nobody can explain that. Nobody. They can explain the process by which the signal is transferred, but they cannot explain how that does that. And indeed, the greater mystery then is that huge visual system is being created by the brain and presented to what? The observer in the head. So who's the observer in the head? How did the observer get there? Where did he come from? And this is what Chalmers argued. It's the hard problem of science. We're not even at first base understanding this. You know, it's science pretends it knows things. I call it the labeling theory of science because we give something a label and give it a nice Latin name or a Greek name. We will, we will believe the scientists have got it right. I call it idiopathic science. The reason I call it idiopathic science is the word idiopathic. You go to your doctor and your doctor turns around and says, you, you think you've got epilepsy. You get tested and the doctor turns around. We've got a diagnosis. You've got idiopathic epilepsy. So you go away thinking, well, I'm concerned about that, but at least I know what I've got. Idiopathic means we haven't got a clue. That's what the word idiopathic means. But doctors use this term all the time. It means we don't know. And this is the same with science. 94% of the universe is missing. We don't know what it is. So we call it dark matter. Then we have dark energy. We call it dark because we don't know what it is. But we stand around saying, Oh, we, you know, we, we know everything. We, we understand how the brain works. It's only a matter of time before we'll understand how the brain works. That's called promissory materialism. It's a promissory note. It's as if you're pretending that you're going to know in the future. It's pretense. You know, I will guarantee that in the next year or two, in the next few years, there's going to be certain group of scientific discoveries that's going to blow the lid off. You know, science works iteratively science works through revolutions science there's a science has a model until a new model comes along and then that changes altogether and our science is creaking at the moment we don't we don't understand black holes how do black holes function what are black holes you know we we have we don't understand subatomic particles we don't understand what subatomic particles are we don't even know what electricity is We're using electricity now in terms of this, what we're doing now. We know how to harness electricity. We don't know what it is. Idiopathic science. More and more and more questions. (laughs) So I'm just backtracking briefly back to our reality and that we do create our reality. Uh, Are you suggesting that the more we actually believe something's there, the more energy we focus on it, the more it comes into our perception of what we call reality? It does seem to be the case. It does seem to be the case. The Philip experiment was a classic example of this, of how this group of parapsychologists got together, amateur parapsychologists, and created this entity called Philip. What an incredible experiment. Pardon? 
incredible experiment. Oh, it was. They 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 create they literally created a backstory to a guy called Philip Aylesford. Didn't exist, but they gave him a fictional story. They said that he was a, an English nobleman living in the British Midlands in Warwickshire in the, what the 1670s. Um, he they they based him at a house that does exist. Mm-hmm. They made out that he was in a loveless marriage. Um, and one day he met a gypsy woman. He was already an outsider because he was a Roman Catholic and it was during the period of the English Civil Wars when it was difficult to be Catholic in the UK. Um, he falls in love with this gypsy woman. His wife finds out and he commits suicide by throwing himself off the battlements of the castle. Complete fiction. They even did mm-hmm. a drawing of him. Then what they did was they spent time just concentrating on him, trying to bring him into existence like a tulpa. And over a period of months, they started to get manifestations. They started to get wraps on the table. And then the table started to levitate. Now, if anybody's in question about this, they actually went on television, on Canadian television, I think about 1972. And the table levitated in the TV studio. If you go on the video, you can see the video of the table levitating. It lifts on one leg and then another leg. So clearly the collective consciousness of the group was creating again what I call the egregorial. It's a kind of whenever you get a group of people together, well, you and I are now creating an egregore. Mm-hmm. With our enthusiasm, we are creating between ourselves a reality that's more tangible and more powerful. You put a large group of people together, the egregore gets bigger. I'll give an example of this. Fatima um, with the Marian visions in what 1917, I think it was in Portugal. Three children see what they think is the Virgin Mary. Thousands of people turn up and one day they saw the sun spin in the sky. Thousands of people saw this. It's because they were anticipating and melding their reality. Egregores are something that's known in magical traditions for years. There's an American writer called Mark Stavish that's written a fantastic book on egregorials. And he says egregorials are things like socialism and Nazism and even advertising. The Coca-Cola sign is an egregore. These are all egregores that we creatively create that seems to become greater than we are. And I've always argued when my little group meet together and we spend hours discussing these things, which we do, well, unfortunately now on Zoom, but we used to do yeah. it over coffee. We feel that the rising power of what we're saying. Now, again, hallucinations, I'll give an example. Hallucinations, for instance. Hallucinations are another one of those things that nobody knows what they are. Yeah. They all turn around and they call it hallucination. And that's the that's the that's the explanation. Okay, so if I if I have an hallucination, the definition of an hallucination is something I see that nobody else sees. So therefore it's not real. Okay, so it's an hallucination. If me and a friend, if you and I both now see a UFO hovering outside the window, that's a folly of deux. And the explanation by the, the psychologists is that we are co-creating an hallucination. So in order to explain something they can't explain, they use something else they can't explain because that suggests telepathy. Because how can two right. people co-create something from their own minds unless they're being telepathic? So this is the, the pathetic level that science will go. They will use telepathy to explain something they can't explain when they can't explain telepathy in the first place. So, and then if a group of people like at Fatima see the same hallucination, it's called mass hysteria. So we've solved it. It's again, labeling science. It's the idea we've solved it because we've given it a name. To me, this is far more important. It means that we, we can create things 
Now, and this is something I'm working on my new book, and this is extraordinary. There is evidence that the act of observation, as I say, collapses the wave function, the statistical wave function of subatomic particles to bring mm -hmm. them into existence. Known fact, scientifically reproduced many, many times, we know, it, we know it happens. The question is whether it's just the act of observation, whether it is um, the environment collapsing the wave function or whether it's the measuring device. But beside the point, ultimately the ultimate observer is a human being or a consciousness. So if that is the case, how large are these particles? Are they just subatomic particles that this mm -hmm. weird thing happens? It's they're not. If you read most science books, they'll say, it's subatomic particles. It doesn't matter. They're so tiny and inconsequential, things like photons and electrons. But they're doing it now with atoms and molecules. In fact, I recently saw a report about a molecule, I think, that has 280 atoms in it. That's a huge molecule yeah. that has this wave particle duality that's brought into existence by the act of observation. Now, the larger ones, the larger uh, molecules they're working on now, by my calculation, are 40% the size of a virus. Now, this starts to get creepy because if we're already at 40% of the size of a virus of objects that can be brought into reality by anticipating them, yes. what's to say viruses aren't created by our anticipations? What does that say about COVID? What does that say about a lot of things? We make these things come about because we somehow collectively create them it's cre it's weird it's weird and it's almost like a wave it builds up the more more and more people believe it and and, and expect it mm. the power it of co-creation we we do we we anticipate things we we create our world around us as we go along we co-create there was a guy called john archibald wheeler who was um the uh, PhD tutor for one of the most famous scientists of recent years, Richard Feynman, for example. And again, this is hard science. This is, again, mm -hmm. I talk hard science. I don't talk new age waffle. I talk hard science. No, we're, we're here. People, and I say to people, go and check what I'm saying. Yeah. Don't take my word for it. If I drop the name Richard Feynman in or John Archibald Wheeler, go and look them up. I'm not making them up. Well, maybe mm -hmm. I am actually. Maybe I am <laughs> well, you, you... <laughs> um, but Wheeler, some of Wheeler's work was extraordinary because Wheeler had a term he called the participatory universe. And this again is coming down to the fact of thought and anticipation. He actually did thought experiments that prove that the act of observation not only brings in subatomic particles into existence now, but brings in subatomic particles into existence from billions of years ago. So we can create our past and we can create our future. When waves come together, they create an interference pattern. It's what causes holograms. OK, mm -hmm. he argues that the past waves coming back in the past and waves coming from the future create this reality at this point in time and it moves forward. But the future is already there. The future is the future is outside of this four dimensional reality, the future in a fifth dimensional reality that's outside of space and time. There is no time. Time is time is different. You can look at somebody's life from their birth to their death in once. Again, fascinating. If anybody's interested here, uh, watch the movie Interstellar uh, in the in the uh, the Christopher Nolan movie. Okay. Um, this is one that, of my favourite subjects, by the way. Future and <laughs> past, present, future all happening at once. Oh, good because it does. I'm it, in complete it's, it's agreement. All the, with you. you know, 
it, it, it's it's as, as the Quran says, these entities, these worlds are as close as the edge of your nose. You know, they are there. OK, it's just that we don't perceive them. OK, so. Reality, then, is is time is time outside of time. It's called orthogonal time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was put forward by Philip K. Dick, the American science fiction writer, was the first person to really use the term orthogonal. And all orthogonal means is something at right angles to something else. So orthogonal time, there's the time scale here, time running. Then there's an orthogonal time, which runs as at a right angle away from it. So if you were there, you could see the whole of somebody's life. Okay. So time, when you're outside of time, you, you see it in a different way. Okay. Now, when people take certain hallucinogenic substances, when they have near-death experiences, the reports are standard. The Moody traits, and I know I thought I thought I saw you interview uh, Ray Moody yeah. in one of your mm-hmm. things. The Moody traits, you know, one of the Moody traits, one of the Grayson traits, is um, time slowing down, and time can slow down because time is subjective. Time is it's it's created by us. It's the only thing I know that's measured by itself. You can have a pound of apples, but you can only ever have a minute of a minute, and this is so important. People turn around and say like Marcus Aurelius did, time is a river, time flows. Moments reflection, if time flows, what's it flowing against? If I look at a normal river, I can see the riverbanks, which will tell me the motion of the river. Mm-hmm. If you take the riverbanks away and you're moving with the flow, you can't see it because you're traveling with it. So you need another time to measure this time by. And a guy called John, John William Dunn, who was an Anglo-American aeronautical engineer in 1927, wrote a book called um, An Experiment with Time. I've read it. It's a good book. Oh, you have? Yeah. So you know Dunn's theory, okay? Yes. And Dunn's theory is there are serial times, and each time is measured against the other time. And you can, when, you are a, when you're in sleep states, you can go into an altered state of consciousness whereby your brain moves into another form of time. And when you do that, you can experience precognitive dreaming. And you can recognize what's about to happen. Don was an amazing guy, fascinating, fascinating guy. I'm delighted to have an interviewer that has actually read. Oh, that, yes. Um, and I love how he started because I think it was first he was sleeping and he imagined what the time was and he looked at his yeah. clock and then it was the right time. And he wondered how that was possible when his eyes were closed. That's, I think that was how it started. And remember, he had that amazing dream where he dreamt he was on a French speaking Caribbean island. And people were coming to him in the dream and they were turning around and saying, there's been a huge earthquake. Yes. Um, and a, a volcanic eruption the other side of the island. And they said 4,000 people have died. I think he, he saw a newspaper, to, didn't he? The newspaper. That's right. Now, this yes. is so important. See, I did read it. I'm not just saying that to be nice. <laughs> you do. You obviously yeah. did. And what happened, and this is so important, that he was down in South Africa, 1902, covering the, the end of the Boer War. And it took a few days for newspapers to get down from London to where he was in South Africa. And the newspaper report on the day that he had the dream was announcing that there'd been um, Mount Pile on the French, French-speaking Caribbean island of Martinique had exploded. And something called the Nuit Adante, which is a, a glowing cloud had come down, mm-hmm. swept through the town of Saint-Pierre and had actually killed everybody. Except, funnily enough, um, a criminal who was about to be hung in a few days later and he was in a cell below ground level and the cloud went over and he survived, which says some weird things, doesn't it? But what what he said about this was intriguing. And the reason it was, he discovered something quite strange about this 
because many years later, he was talking about this dream and somebody pointed out to him and said, do you know you got that dream wrong? Your dream was wrong. And he said, why? And he said, well, you said in the dream that 4,000 people had been killed. Do you know that it was actually 40,000? And he went back to the newspaper and it was actually said 40,000. He had misread it. When he read the newspaper report, he misread it. And bing, a little light went on in his head and he thought, I wasn't recognizing the event. I was recognizing reading about the event. Mm. I was being made aware of something in my immediate future. And my dream mind had created a dream based upon that, which is profoundly important. And it's central to my own hypothesis of choosing the ferryman this, the idea that this is what happens. So we're not so much uh, the, the, the looking into the future, looking at events, we're looking at our reality, our perception of what we're experiencing. If we are individual units or sometimes co-creating as well. Yeah, it is. I think that the great the great mystery is we're not thinking about it in the right way. You know, the, it's, a, it's a horrible phrase, but thinking outside of the box. But the, 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 the point of the matter is that we are so invested in our present materials reductionist scientific model that we're missing the point. Uh, in the UK in the 1930s, there was a very famous illustrator called Heath Robinson. And Heath Robinson used to draw these incredibly ornate contraptions to make things happen. I'd argue that a lot of our science at the moment is Heath Robinson in that it's painted itself into a corner and it can't get out. It's gone down a certain route, which is the materialist reductionist route, which is fine. In, in principle, breaking something apart in order to understand how it works is a perfectly reasonable principle. If I wanted to understand how my car works, I would take it apart and then find all the bits work, put them together, and I'd realize how the internal combustion engine works. But you cannot do that with the brain. You can't do it with consciousness. You can't do it with experience because it seems to be in reverse of this. You know, the brain is different. You know, the consciousness is different. Consciousness is non-physical, so you can't take it apart. It's very hard and to for measure. Years, pardon? It's very hard to measure. Exactly. And for years, we, 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 the Western science wants to measure things and quantify things. And when you can't measure it or quantify it or repeat it, instead of saying we need to understand it, they just dismiss it. You know, Plato's cave, the famous uh, Plato's cave, the idea that people, certain people have extraordinary experiences. And we dismiss them instead of turning around and saying, well, what could have caused this experience, which is what I try to do, understanding hallucinations and then trying to do the science of it. So in other words, I take people's accounts and then I say, right, OK, taking you at face value, you had this experience and I've had various experiences in my life. And I'm sure you have and I'm sure mm -hmm. the listeners have. They need to be explained for some scientists to turn around and say that precognition doesn't happen is arrogance because I know it does. I have had precognitive dreams that have come true. I have precognitive deja vu sensations. These things happen and I want to explain them. I don't want some scientists saying, my science can't explain it, therefore it doesn't happen. That's not science, that's scientism. That's a religious belief. If you don't, if it, if you don't, if it doesn't fit in with my dogma, I'm ignoring it. I'm, I'm suffering from cognitive dissonance. It doesn't fit in, so I'm ignoring it. 
That's not the way forward. The way forward is to, within reason. If people experience things phenomenologically, we need to at least explore them. For instance, we know that near-death experiences happen. There is no doubt near-death mm -hmm. experiences happen. My question is, but what are near-death experiences? Let's know that they happen. Out-of-the-body experiences happen. Veridical out-of-the-body experiences happen. I was not a believer in veridical out-of-the-body experiences till I was shown how they work and indeed given evidence by a friend of mine, Graham Nichols, who you must have on the show, by the way, who had a precognitive out-of-body experience where he saw an event that was about to take place five days later in detail, in the location, and he had witnesses to this. So he wasn't making it up. The question is, how does that happen? And my hypothesis, I believe, gives at least a structure based on science to explain it. There are too many books out there of people writing books on near-death experiences. Oh, I met Jesus. Oh, I did this. Elvis Presley appeared. And, you know, story after story after story. How many stories do you need to tell about the near-death experience? We don't need more stories about the near-death experience. We need to understand what's happening. Is the brain creating it? If the brain is creating it, what's going on in the brain? What neurochemicals have been reacted there? These hallucinations are real. What's the links? How can you meet somebody that has died who can give you information in a near-death experience, which you can then come back? Like Eben Alexander with his, with his sister that he yeah. didn't even know existed, that he sees on the wings of a butterfly How is in that his near-death experience. How is that possible? Inexplicable. Yeah. So what, what is your belief? What, I mean, obviously, we're much more than our physical body and our brain. What happens when our body, this physical body dies? When this physical body dies, it, belief is a dangerous term to use. Um, Sorry. Because I don't believe things until I've done the science to understand what's happening. What do I consider is taking place is that we're confusing when we talk about life after death. Mm -hmm. We are getting confused. And I think I'm the only writer that is suggesting this. But the, the, the thing we are not taking into account here is time. I argue you cannot die in your own subjective time world. You are seen to die in other people's time world. So in other words, you die in somebody else's world. You die, your body rots, your brain rots. And the argument that you cannot perceive things without a functioning brain, I completely agree with. You can't. If your brain is dead, you can't do anything. But imagine the scenario that what happens at the point of death is that time itself expands. At the final millisecond of your life, time expands to accommodate another life and then another life and then another life. In which case, then you are existing in smaller bits of time. Now, again, there is the, 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 there's um, in my new book, I'll be discussing the theories of a guy called Julian Barber. The idea, again, that there is a time behind time, again, going back to the serial times we were discussing earlier, <laughs> where time is an illusion. And Einstein said this. We, we turned around and he said time is an illusion, but an incredibly persistent one. It's because it's a subjective experience. So imagine that the moment before you die, you fall into another time scale call it the bardo state or call it the limbo state you know the buddhists were quite right about the bardo you go into this other perceptual universe and while you're there you have all the time in the world to either as i suggest cheat the ferryman which is going back and live your life again within the simulation 
as Louisa. If, so I, I'm always living as Louisa, not as a, a reincarnation. I'm always Louisa. There's two, there's two factors here that's very important to differentiate. There's the many lives you can live as Louisa within the simulation, mm-hmm. like you're, you're in a, first, a third person computer game of your own life. Imagine that there's a program that contains every outcome of every decision that Louisa can ever make. Not only that, but there's a program that the other variations of Louisa that would exist in the multiverse, whereby your parents chose to go and emigrate to South Africa or America, there'd be a different Louisa. So they're all there, together with all the other opportunities where your parents, your grandparents, whether they met, whether they didn't meet, where they went, suddenly it becomes huge in terms of the alternatives. That's the first thing. But there is also the collective unconscious. There's also the attunement you can do to what Jung called the collective unconscious, which mm-hmm. I call, when, when I wrote my book with Irvin Laszlo, Laszlo has a thing called the Akashic field, which is the zero point field. Everything is information. Within the program of the informational field, there is the, 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 the racial memory of humanity. It's within our DNA. DNA carries data. Within your DNA, is the DNA of humanity. So therefore, in these altered states of consciousness, when you die or when you're hypnotically regressed, you can choose to be Cleopatra. You can choose to be Hannibal crossing the Alps because it's all there. It's all encoded because ultimately, and this is the most important point, ultimately, my hypothesis suggests that we are one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. We are not individuated consciousnesses. This is not new. People like Mm -hmm. Alan Watts were saying it. We know it right through from the philosophy, from Vedanta and everything else, from uh, the Kabbalah, from Sufism. The argument is, and you go back into the belief systems, we are all just a dream of Brahman. We are all, we are everything. You know, within religious beliefs, it says, find the God within, find the Christ within. The Christ within is what I call the daemon which is your part of you that's part of the greater something. And we can then attune into that greater something, in which case we can have reincarnations. And this is how reincarnation works. For me, reincarnation, people think I dismiss reincarnation because of cheating the ferryman. I don't. They can run parallel. They don't have to be exclusive. But nobody explains reincarnation. Everybody goes on, oh, you die, and then you you choose a new life, and you go and you live that. Great. But where's the explanation for it? Where's the science? I'm the only writer doing this, I think, in the world, saying, great, let's do the science. Let's take the science back to the skeptics. Mm -hmm. Let's take it back and say, well, what if it's the zero point field? What if it's the informational field? DNA itself has codons in it. It has four codons within DNA that are annotated by different letters. It's a digital code. It's a digital code in exactly the same way as it's a digital code in your computer. So every piece of DNA in your body has a digital coding, has digital information. Not only this, but every neuron in your brain has things in it called microtubules. And these microtubules are so small, quantum effects can take place within them. These are the things that create reality. Within your brain, there's something called the glial cells. You know, when people turn around and say that 90%, we don't use 90% of our brain. People use that statement all the time. They don't know what it means. What it means is that 10% of your brain is neurons, 90% are glial cells. They found something called a calcium wave that goes across the brain at unbelievable speed. 
This is because neurons are not where the brain functions properly. It's the glial cells. There's a guy called Andrew Gluer that's been writing about this for quite a few years. This explains something called the binding problem. How is it that you have a feeling of simultaneity now? You're looking out of your window. Like you say, you're looking out your window, you see a bouncing red ball. Mm -hmm. That's impossible because red is processed in one part of the brain. The bouncing movement is processed in a different part of the brain, as is all the else you're seeing in your visual field. They are, mild, they are, in relative terms, great distances in the brain. And yet you feel instantaneously. The brain, according to the neuronal theory, I think it's about 700, 700 feet per second, I think the electrical signals in the brain work. There's not, there's not enough time for that coming together. It's called the binding problem. Whereby, but if the brain works non-locally, and I haven't got time here to go into the physics of this yeah. about non-locality, <laughs> but it's another known physical effect, where two particles can communicate instantaneously, it effectively means if the brain works non-locally, it, it works holographically. And this is how we can draw up memories quickly. And the holograms themselves are part and parcel of the computer model I'm talking about that overall reality is. Now, if that all made sense. It does. Oh, my God, I'm going to have to listen to this interview quite a few times. It certainly does. I just wanted <laughs> to clarify one thing with you. There's infinite probabilities of choices from any choice I can make or my family makes that I'm living at some point in space-time in parallel lives as Louisa. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. There are multiple versions of you following every path that you can possibly path, possibly follow. This again is an extrapolation from something called the Everett's Many Worlds Interpretation of Quantum Physics, which was a 1957 PhD paper written by Hugh Everett III, whose son, by the way, used to be the lead singer of the band called The Eels. There's a bit of side information there. Okay. Um, and it's a fun it fact. was his attempt to explain Schrodinger's cat. It was his attempt to explain the mysteries of the observer and the fact that if something is not observed, is it in two states at the same time? Is a cat in a box dead or alive? Um, and from there, it's been extrapolated out as people like David Deutsch, who is a scientist at the University of Cambridge, and lots of people have been working on the many worlds hypothesis. I weave together the many worlds hypothesis together with something called the implicate and explicate orders, which is something put forward by Professor David Bohm. I also argue that there is in elements of the Copenhagen interpretation and the idea of the observer based reality. And if you pull them all together, you start to have a model whereby it makes sense. So there are many versions of you, all of whom are you. Okay, this is the important point, all of whom are you. And you, the eternal you, is something I call the daemon. You within the game, you within you, your individuated consciousness of Louisa in this universe now is an eidolon. Okay, it's like an on-screen sprite that occurs every time a game is loaded up. It only exists for one life or one game. It then dies. But the daemon is the game player. The daemon is the person who knows what you did last time round and warns you this time round of how to get through the game. OK, so I guess you've had it in your life and I'll guarantee a lot of listeners out there that feeling, that little voice in your head when you meet somebody for the first time that goes, whoa, something wrong with this person or this person is going to be of great influence to me. That's your daemon. Your daemon, depending on how your doors of perception are open will depend on how active your daemon communicate with you. 
So your daemon can communicate with you. If you're schizophrenic, your daemon is shouting at you all the time. Right. Okay. But normally we have them in dreams. Normally the daemon speaks in dreams or speaks in inklings or sometimes can physically move your body to save your life. I've had people write to me from around the world who've had incidents where the daemon has taken over the body to save their life. Now, this is because the daemon is your game player. But remember, it's important about this game player. The game player can only be as effective in your life to the point you get to where the game last stopped, where it last remembered what to do. So when you're playing a computer game, you know, you get to the last point, the end point, and you don't know whether in the next room there's going to be a monster or not. So you can't protect your on-screen sprites. The only way you can do that is to investigate it. And I believe this is what our daemons do. Our daemons try us to experience everything we can in our lives, as Connors does in the movie Groundhog Day. He follows every channel, every alternative, in every way. Danny Rubin, the guy that wrote Groundhog Day, by the way, um, gave my first book to most of his friends at Harvard because he said, this guy's done the science of Groundhog Day. Okay, I've interviewed him That's on the show. So clearly this model works and people, when they actually fully understand what I mean by chasing the ferryman, a little light goes on in their head and they go, do you know, I've always thought that. I've always thought this. Deja vu. What is deja vu? Deja vu can be explained simply in cheating the ferryman terms. You remember it because you've lived it before. You've been there before. You literally have been in that place before. Now, people turn around and say it's evidence of, re of reincarnation. No, it's not. It cannot be. If I imagine that I get a deja vu now, oh, you get a deja vu now. You're sitting in front of a computer screen. Mm -hmm. You're you. You're not somebody in historical past. You're you. So whatever you're remembering is something you have experienced as you before. Do you know there are 72 different explanations of deja vu? 72. Mine is one of them. A book recently listed them all. And Cheating the Ferryman is one of them. But most psychological books will do something called the Ephron. It's called the Visual Pathways. Robert Ephron, Visual Pathways Hypothesis. They will say that deja vu has been explained. It's to do with the brain receiving signals too quickly. The right side of the brain and the left side of the brain, non-dominant and dominant hemispheres receiving the signal before. Utter rubbish. Anybody who does the research will know that a guy called Akira O'Connor in the University of Leeds about 10 years ago did a series of experiments with congenitally blind people. And they actually have what's called deja senti, which is already heard. And it works differently. The neural pathways in the brain for hearing complete work completely differently. So that's out of the water. That is not an explanation. So when people turn around and they do this to me a lot, they'll go, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. The Ephron thesis. I know the Ephron thesis. I know what I'm talking about in these things. As I say to my critics, how deep do you want to go? How deep do you want me to be explained to you Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? Do you want me to do that? I will do that if you want. So it's important you know your facts before you actually stand up and make these points. But it seems to work. And I think it's incredibly liberating. We all make mistakes in our lives. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could go back and not make that mistake or take that opportunity, that job offer you had to go and live in Bermuda? I turned it down because my mother was ill. Well, this time round, your daemon can warn you and you can take it and you can find out who would you meet. All our loved ones, people talk about reincarnation. I find reincarnation heartbreaking. The loved ones I've had in this life, I don't want to lose. I don't want to be reincarnated as somebody else and not know who I am. And in that life, meet new people. I want to meet my people I love here again. 
to say I'm sorry, to say I love you. These kind of things. Cheating the ferryman allows you to do that. And not only allows you to do that, but allows to then explore your life as a virtual computer game, virtual reality computer game. Anthony, you certainly are passionate. And I, just, I, 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 I really understand the infinite timelines that, that we can live on. My other question to you is, if there is no time, uh, are all my, so for example, am I living right now as a six-year-old or as an 80-year-old in some point in space-time? Yes, there is, there is a concept called the linga saria or the long body. And imagine a scenario that, and again, um, again, referencing, I wrote a book on the, the British uh, playwright called J.B. Priestley. And J.B. Priestley was very much influenced by the writings of a, a uh, both of uh, uh, J.W. Dunn, okay. and also a Russian philosopher called Peter, Peter Ospensky. And in order to explain Dunn's theories, he wrote, he wrote a play called um, Time and the Conways. And in scene two of Time and the Conways at the end, one of the characters, Alan, is explaining to Kay Conway, who is the daughter in, in the play, about a book he's read, which is, which is funnily enough, Ospensky. Um, no, it's J.W. Dunn then that he refers to, but he mm -hmm. mentions a book. And he turned around and he said, we are all our times. From the moment of our birth to the moment of our death is us. Because if you look, if you imagine there's a being that can see our critical fusion facility of our eye is, I think, 20, 26 images to the second, which gives us the illusion of movement, like a cine camera. Imagine a being whose instant of imagery is 75 years and they look at you. You will be a worm-like creature that will start very small, get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then smaller and smaller and smaller until you die. And you can slice that like a piece of bread. And every time you slice it, you'll find a version of you at that moment. Okay? Just like stills in a camera. When you put the stills together, you get the illusion of movement. Edwede Murbridge and his things, the jumping horses and things. Now, on a stage production of Time and the Conways at the National Gallery in, in London, at the National Theatre in London a few years ago, where I spoke before, by the way. Um, they tried to show this by having a group of actresses all wearing the same dress, lean uh, in different positions going back through the stage. And then they had a strobe light and they ran the strobe light along them and you gave the illusion of movement. And that was how we mean by serial time. Okay, so going back to the idea, we think we are just one slice of our life, but we are all of our lives and our daemon is all of our lives. You are a little girl, just like you're a, an elderly lady. It's just that you're not in the fifth dimension, review, viewing it in such a way. Again, if that makes sense. Yeah, Again, yeah. going back, do you remember in Interstellar, the Tesseract sequence? I actually haven't looked... seen it, but I'm going to. <laughs> okay, in the Tesseract sequence, he looks, he looks through um, the main character. Is it Mitch? I think he looks through a bookcase into the world of his daughter and he sees his daughter's life within a tesseract. A tesseract is a hyper, hypercube, 
The tesseract is the idea that if you have you have a point, then if you draw a point out, you have a line, don't you? If you go at right angles, you have a square. If you go at right angles from the four corners, you get a cube. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you then go right angles from them, you get what's called a tesseract, which is a hypercube, which is something that's outside of space and time. And what that's what they're trying, what um, the director, Nolan, Christopher Nolan was trying to show when the central character looks through and sees his daughter in all her lives. And he sees her like the linga seria, the long body, the Vedantic long body. And that is what we really are. That's the eternal you and the eternal me. That's, the, that's us outside of time. It's what some people would call the soul. I don't use that term. I use the daemon yeah. because I believe that there's a daemon. Then there is, believe is the wrong term, but there's a daemon. I'm doing this model at the moment that beyond the devil is something daemon I call the uber daemon. And the uber daemon is the consciousness and it reduces down. So you have hyper-consciousness of everybody. Then you have the daemon, which is the consciousness of all your life. Then you have you as an on, experiencing life in sequential time in, 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 in the temporal world, in the temporal universe. Very, very interesting. So I just have to ask a question. Do we, do we actually never die does our physical body never die it's just our perception I, th I think our physical i think our physical body never dies um have you interviewed bruce grayson no at all oh you know of bruce grayson i guess I've heard yeah of him, yes okay bruce grayson is professor of um psychiatry at the university of virginia and bruce um is was for many years the top guy in the Inter international association of near-death studies in his foreword to my first book, Is There Life After Death? Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, he actually said that he considered my cheating the ferryman hypothesis to be the most extraordinary, revolutionary and um, potential explanation of your immortality I've ever experienced. And it's because it explains everything. It is what we're looking for is something, a single theory or hypothesis that can explain everything. I can. You know, the world is slowly waking up to me. I mean, I'm an obscure guy <laughs> living an obscure life, but slowly but surely my work is getting out there. And when people come across it, they literally blows their mind. You know, they go, I just, wow. Um, and I believe genuinely that it makes sense to me, but it only makes sense to me. It's part of my searching. It has to make sense to you because in your universe, it might be different anyway, because if you're creating your universe, you might have chosen to have a universe where my cheating the ferryman hypothesis. Oh, I, I love exist. all your ideas. My, I love all your ideas. My next question is, what, I've got to ask, what, what's the point of it all? Why are we here? What, we're not here. Why are we experiencing this? What, what is it? What does it all mean? Okay. Again, this is purely my own idea on this. We are here to live the perfect life. We are here to become avatars we are here over a myriad of lives to become a buddha within yourself as it were now again in the movie um groundhog day do you remember what happens he realizes he's living the same day over and over again what does he do at the start he effectively is a daemon living an edolonic life he's a daemon that has become an edolon with his demonic memories. so his memories of all the other previous days are already in his head okay and he uses that to his advantage so what he does over many reiterations of the same day, he tries to bed the girl. He tries to do all the selfish things. Mm -hmm. 
And he realizes that doesn't make him feel good. He does that. He does all of that. And it's not fulfilling him. So then he decides he wants to commit suicide and he commits suicide in the most bizarre ways. And every day he commits every night, every day he commits suicide. And he wakes up to see Sonny and Cher singing again and he's living his day again. He realizes he can't get out by doing that. So he's gone through the, the hedonistic. Then he's gone through the depression. Then he gets to the stage of thinking, do you know what? If I'm living this same day over and over again, I can use it as an opportunity to learn things. So suddenly he starts teaching himself foreign languages. He starts teaching himself how to play the piano, play the violin. And he does all of these things and he gets the knowledge then. So suddenly he's developing as a human being and suddenly knowledge is important to him. But he still feels unfulfilled and he needs spiritual fulfillment. So what does he then do? He then checks the newspapers of what events happen in that day in the town of Punxsutawney. And what he does is he makes sure he's round the town to save people's lives, to be there with somebody who's thinking of committing suicide, to be underneath the tree when the child falls out the tree. And what he's doing then is he's gone through the selfishness phase and he's doing good for doing good's sake. He's not doing good for reward. He's doing good because he wants to help other people. And at that point, he's allowed to move on to the next day. At that point, he becomes Buddha consciousness. At that point, this is not what Danny meant, by the way. This is my interpretation. Um, But he then becomes Buddha consciousness. He then becomes what could be called an avatar, somebody who has lived his life many, many times and then can choose to go back and live their life again to do good and help other people. Or they can choose to move on be reincarnated or go to heaven or whatever your religious beliefs accommodate. Because remember, all of this happens in the split second before you actually die. And that is so important. It's the Bardo state. Okay. now again, and this is of profound importance here, that in another J.B. Priestley play uh, called I Have Been Here Before, which is based upon the theories of Peter Ospensky, One of the characters is literally what I've just described. He's somebody who's lived his life millions of times and goes back into people's lives, into his life, to save people making terribly bad decisions within that life. And I believe this is what happens here. I believe that there are avatars within our lives or people you meet that seem to know you, that seem to have this air of something about them. People would call them ascended masters. Who knows? Adepts, I don't know. But they're people that just seem to instinctively know to help. Saints, I suppose, you know, within the the Christian ethos of this. But these people and but we can become that and we need to listen to our daemon and guides us through our lives. And then imagine how wonderful it would be to live a life where you don't hurt anybody. And all you do is you help everybody. And you make the world a better place. And I think that's what it's all about. Can I ever prove that? No, but that's what I believe. Oh, well, that feels right to me as well. Absolutely feels right. And you mentioned just on a, finally, you mentioned that we are in fact all one. What, what do you mean by that? It's, it's a concept that's been known for millennia and it's called pandeism. And it's the idea that we are effectively all God. We call, we call the collective 
unconscious of humanity, the collective of, of life, really. It's what um, uh, Teilhard de Chardin called the new sphere. It's the singularity of consciousness that we are all one. Um, and this is the basic teaching of every single religion. If you look back, um, Aldous Huxley had a concept he called a perennial philosophy. And the perennial philosophy is the kind of the truths that are in all philosophical belief systems. And one of the truths is that we're all one consciousness experiencing itself self subjectively. Now, in ancient Greek life, Greek terms, what would happen is that we forget who we are. OK, we forget that we are part of God. And in doing so, we're in a state of amnesis. Some of us get in a state of anamnesis, which is the loss of forgetting when you suddenly realize that God is within and you are, you are part of God and God is you. Okay. You know, because every single religion, they teach this, Yeah. you know, in, in, even in Christianity, you know, look for, look for the Christ within, you know, it's within you that, that, that all the secrets lie. There is no out there. There is just you and you are everything. Now, again, mystics will tell you if you read books on mysticism, they have something called the oceanic experience. And again, a guy called, I think he was a British or was he Canadian? Might've been Canadian uh, called Buck, wrote a book called Cosmic Consciousness about 1900. And in it, he discusses when people, when mystics suddenly have this feeling of expanding outwards to encompass everything. Have you ever, it's sometimes, sometimes I mean, Ospensky had the feeling on the Sea of Azov in, in the Black Sea when he suddenly was looking out of a boat and suddenly he saw, he realized he was the seagulls, he realized he was the sea, he realized he was everything around him. As did a friend of mine during his near-death experience when he was drowning in the sea, a guy called Bill Murtha. It's one of the things that happened during his near-death experience when he realized as he was drowning that he was the water, he was the cliffs he could see, he was the seagulls that were flying above him. He was everything. And at that moment, you reach enlightenment. At that moment, there is this sudden realization. Now, in most normal lives, we only have it occasionally. You know, like Wordsworth in his famous poem about a few miles above Tintern Abbey, where he said, I've seen it in the light of setting suns. It's this sliver of shiver up your spine feeling of going, oh, my God. What is that? I know I am more than this. And that's the point where you realize that this is fascinating. Life is fascinating. Being is fascinating. But we are something more than this. And again, going down to the ridiculous, the single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, if you get the opportunity, just go onto the web uh, and go onto YouTube and just put in Bill Hicks and... Um, single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Bill Hicks was an American comedian okay. and he defined it far better than I did in a very small comedy sketch. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And that just goes to show that this is something we all instinctively know. This is the thing in the film, The Matrix, where Morpheus turns around and says to Neo or Anderson, as he was then, there's something nagging inside you. There is something you can't, you can't quite get at. I believe it's cheating the ferryman. I believe it's the singularity of consciousness. And in my new book, I'll be really going into this. In my next book, this will be explaining everything. This will be my ultimate book. 
because I'm pulling it all together. All my books are going to, all the things I've been discussing in my books are going to be pulled together in one volume and applying the science. But as always, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. As Marcello Trui said, that's what I do. I do the science. And then I give you the references and I say, go to the back of the book, read the reference, read the academic papers. If you disbelieve, if you think my conclusions are wrong, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But please read the papers. Don't just dismiss it because of your prejudices. Well, Anthony Peak, and, and all your details will be in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. My gosh, you're so passionate and, and filled with energy. It's, um, it was very exciting to talk to you. Thank you. Well, I, I sometimes feel that I don't have that many years left in this incarnation now. Um, you know, I've got my 67th birthday in four days time and I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, how did that happen? Um, so I, my passion is because I know that I've only got so many years left in this run of the Bomi and IMAX, as I call it, to try and get it right this time round. But if I don't get it right this time round, I'll get it back. I'll get it right the next time round. Well, there's infinite possibilities for, of other lifetimes to get it <laughs> Absolutely. right. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much, Anthony. Okay. Thanks, bye Louise. Bye. Wonderful talking to you. It was wonderful. Bye. Bye-bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.